Let's start with the options for innovative devices, like just kind of set the stage. What are the programs that are out there right now? Kevin, you'll start today. Yeah. So this is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. So as Steve mentioned, I was heavily involved in the CRH Innovation Group at FDA, and I was really focused of really focused on driving innovation through products to provide uh, more timely access for patients for safe and effective devices. And there's a lot of programs that FDA runs that helps these innovators get these novel devices to market. But the three main ones I think is the most accessible and most relevant for this conversation would be the breakthrough, the step, and the payers programs. So the breakthrough, I think, is the one that most people are familiar with. It's one that's been around the most. It used to be called the expedited access pathway, and over time has become the breakthrough. And this was really the fourth step was the main pathway or main program for companies who have innovative devices to get expedited review process through FDA. Different criteria to make through breakthrough, uh, sorry, different criteria for devices who want to get accepted into the breakthrough, which include treating a very uh, life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating condition. Uh, and there's just several ones, several second criteria, like treating an unmet need or in the best interest of patients or offer a significant advantage over existing. Then there's the STEP, which is the newer program, uh, new risk program of FDA. These are kind of like the sister program, I view it, of breakthrough. If you look at the first criteria, it says that it's for the de devices that are not eligible for breakthrough and treat a less serious condition than what would be for breakthrough, which is nice because it kind of fits the other half of devices that don't meet breakthrough, um, but really more focused on the safety profile of the device. If you look at the second criteria for STEP, really focused on reducing known adverse events or failure modes and improving the benefit risk profile of the devices. So those two are like the really the, the main ones I would say, and the lesser well-known ones are the payer programs. I think these don't get enough love, so I like pitching them whenever I have the opportunity. Um, these are your pre-sub with payers and your parallel review, which are essentially allows companies to bring payers to the table early in your clinical development plan to identify what they would be looking for to be able to grant a coverage decision in the future. So it's really, really great because companies get to hear, like, get, get feedback from payers, which is sometimes difficult, and incorporate their feedback early on in the process. Oh, thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Anything <laughs> else? Anything from you, Nance? Yeah, so there's a couple other things that I think are being piloted that I think for people that are doing software as a medical device um, are watching with interest to see if that lifecycle approach where maybe gives you a little more flexibility to make changes in the software, which tends to happen pretty regularly and pretty frequently. Um, so I think that one is worth watching because I think that might be in a nice next project um, type. I think they're doing some other things, maybe not necessarily just for innovative devices, but still help get your device to market quick. And that's like the, using the eStar program, that template, which makes it uh, really easy to see everything that you know needs to go in a 510k submission. So if you're new to 510ks, that's a great template tool. Even if you've been doing them, it it's just provides a nice list. I find you don't skip stuff because it's in the the template and you've got to fill it in yeah nancy mentioned the uh the software programs like the pre-certification and the regulatory framework for ai and machine learned software um that is something that people are really keeping a close eye on and fortunately um fda is actively working on a on a guidance document it's a draft guidance document uh and in their prioritized list of guidances this was in their their b list not their a list but their b list so they're working on a guidance to help flesh out the framework of these software programs 
I also think the any... safety. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, Lisa. No. Go ahead, Kev. Go ahead. Oh. I was going to say the safety and performance based pathways, not necessarily for innovative devices, but I think is a very innovative process. Um, I think it's a lot of work to be done, but I think it's FDA realizing they have so much information in their internal databases that can be leveraged to make a smoother process for companies. You know, it might reduce the need for bench testing, which I think every, or side by side bench testing, which I think is always a hurdle for companies <laughs> to be able to find predicates. So I think that's another very innovative process that FDA is incorporating to be able to kind of expedite that process and make it a little bit smoother for everyone. Yeah, I think the other thing that sometimes gets missed is there is the MDDT program, so the medical device development tools. So especially some of these innovative devices, we're trying to measure really hard things like, you know, improvement in patient outcome or cardiovascular function, um, not necessarily from a physiological, but from a, a life cycle. And having some of those tools that have been qualified and you can use to support your submission, um, you know, I would definitely at least check there. Or if you're creating something that's really going to be, you want to become the standard, we've seen people take that approach and, and apply for those first. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Um, how do I know if my device is really innovative? Kind of seems like everyone thinks they're their product is the best thing ever. So how do I know if I, you know, uh, am eligible for any of those? Yeah, uh, so we have two good sources of information, uh, guidance documents and press releases. So for uh, breakthrough devices in the guidance document, uh, basically every device that gets accepted into that program needs to demonstrate that you can more effectively treat a severe condition. Um, and one of the secondary criteria that you can meet um, is just demonstrating that your device represents, quote, breakthrough technology. Uh, FDA, has a, FDA has a very simple definition of breakthrough technology, which is a novel, <laughs> breakthrough technology is novel technology or a novel application of existing technology. So straightforward. Um, a couple of examples that they give in the guidance documents would be, um, a heart valve that could be implanted uh, uh, transcutaneously versus uh, during open heart surgery. So different cert different uh, implantation methods uh, can make you innovative versus not. Uh, they also give an example of an internal hemostatic device to control non-compressive wounds. Uh, very innovative sounding. Um, another great source of uh, figuring out what FDA considers uh, breakthrough or innovative are press releases. So FDA obviously can't put out these press releases of devices that aren't on the market yet because it's proprietary information. But fortunately, companies like to do that because it's mm -hmm. it's great marketing, it's great advertising for them that they got this designation. So lots of press releases out there. We have uh, using artificial intelligence for cancer detection. We have resorbable orthopedic screws that use uh, novel materials. Um, implantable stimulation devices for cluster headaches. So uh, lots of different things to sort of get your mind around what FDA considers uh, breakthrough. Uh, for STEP, we don't have as much information yet because it's a relatively new program. Um, every device that gets accepted into STEP needs to demonstrate that they're exhibiting a substantial safety innovation. Um, fortunately, FDA defines substantial safety innovation in the same way that they defined breakthrough, which is uh, innovative technological feature or innovative use of an existing technological feature. 
they give some examples in the, the step guidance document. So changing surface properties, uh, changing material manufacturing methods, the use of a new material, and then there's this blanket example of significant changes to software. So there, uh, we talked a little bit about software before uh, with respect to a different program, but I think uh, in general, software could be a place where uh, step could be used pretty regularly. And to add on Brian's, I think when I was an innovation group, part of that role was a lot of outreach to these small, smaller companies, accelerators, incubators. And everyone thought, like Lisa was saying, everyone thought you have an innovative device. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Because you have, take so much pride, you put so much effort into your, to your baby, like why would it not be innovative, right? But I guess it's a different question of how do you convince FDA now that is innovative, right? So what Brian was saying, like you do like a press releases, but I think another source would be look at other predicates or standard of treatment of care, right? Like, are you offering a benefit, maybe not compared to a device, but a treatment option that people have, that clients have, or that the patients have access to? Um, and two, I think it's not just about your technology itself, but also about the timing and the application. So there, it's rare, but I've now seen it twice where there's multiple de novos in-house for the same technology. And it's tough because, the companies don't know, FDA can't say anything, and it's really tough because it's kind of like a race now of who gets there first. And unfortunately, whoever gets there first, the other one gets converted into a 510K, but you're not really less innovative, you just don't get that de novo grant anymore, you don't make the special classification, now you just follow as a 510K. So I think mm -hmm. minus press releases, uh, you can also look at clinicaltrials.gov to kind of keep an eye out on what other competitors are doing as maybe another option. Uh, but I do think that being innovative or novel isn't just about the technology, but also about the timing of when you can bring it actually to market. Yeah, and it's, it's frustrating when you know that de novo is in FDA from your competitor, and <laughs> FDA just keeps asking you strange questions that have nothing to do with your submission, and you know they're coming from somebody else because their device is different. That's a tough one. Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah that's like the tricky situation. Yeah. But I think, right, if I talk to any marketing person ever, their device is the most innovative, different. Like, if you're looking for a way to frame up your application, like, go talk to your marketing person. They have a great story. Now, I, I feel kind of bad, though, because I feel like for 20 years I've been telling marketing people, no, no, you're the same as because you're substantially equivalent, so you can get a 510K in 90 days. Like, stop saying you're different. You're going to kill us. <laughs> Hey, also, it's tricky when you um, think about the payer programs, too, because you could try to be, so when you go to FDA, you try to say, oh, look, we're like, maybe not quite innovative, but like, there's no new concerns. We're like the same, we're the same, it's okay. And then we go to payer, you should say, oh, no, I'm so different. You should pay for us because like, we're so different than everything out there. So it's like two different arguments, which can be a little tricky. That's a really good point. I mean, I remember reviewing uh, 510Ks and doing word searches for novel or... Uh, innovative and those would be red flags for me you know what I mean and that would make me focus but I mean now it's 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 good to be novel it's good to have innovation in within this uh, these program contexts you make me feel better because I always search my 510k for novel and take it out <laughs> so now that I know you were searching for that on the other side it makes me feel better yeah. that's a great tip it's <laughs> a great tip so similar, similar question related to 510Ks. Um, 
does qualifying for a 510k mean that you can't possibly qualify for breakthrough and vice versa? Yeah, this is very counterintuitive. And I think a lot of reviewers still struggle with this, especially in the beginning of the breakthrough program. Because you would think based on the definition of breakthrough, you're offering a substantial improvement over the existing technology or an unmet need. So how can you possibly be substantially equivalent to another product? And something that was really driven, like really, really driven home to me when I was being taught how to review things, that the question you should be asking is that, is the change a degree question or is it a different question? Right, so say you make an improvement to a device, is it the same question and just an improvement in safety and now you just need maybe clinical data to support that degree, but it's not a new question? Or is that the technological characteristic a brand new question that's never been asked for any other type of similar device? And I think that kind of nuance is easier than it sounds like, but it actually, I think, is very, very difficult. And I think a lot of reviewers still struggle between degree versus difference. Um, and I think you see that when you look at how many breakthroughs had 510K or 510Ks? The last number I saw, it's a little dated, but in 2018 or 2019, out of the 100 breakthroughs that were reviewed, only two or three were 510Ks. So it may have increased in the last couple of years, but I think it is a little bit more challenging to be a 510K and receive breakthrough, but still definitely possible. No, exactly. <laughs> it's um, by nature of being novel and by being innovative, it it might make it harder for you to get through the flow chart. I mean, which these programs don't uh, make the existing regulatory frameworks go away. You still need to get through the existing flow charts and you still need to stay on the flow chart if you're going to be a 510K. Um, and, but maybe with these programs, Kevin was talking about the, the degree question versus a different question. Maybe FDA will offer a little more flexibility with the degree question because sometimes companies would push that degree question. Um, uh, so uh, it'll be interesting to see over time, you know, how flexible they are when you're going through the flow chart. I think we've seen situations where, I don't know, it goes kind of go both ways, right? Like if you make a material change to a novel material, does the, the novel material present a new type of question or is it a question you'd ask for all materials like biocomp or uh, it's like strength testing, bench testing, right? Or is it something new, like it's resorbable all of a sudden, so now they're at greater risk biologically. And I think mm -hmm. maybe areas that are not quite that cut and dry, but you make a material that's not, another new material that's not resorbable, is that a degree or a, or a type or a different? And it can get pretty tricky, I think. Yeah, I think one of the other things I've seen is 510Ks, you used to be able to get away with more of those technology changes because the options were you either substantially equivalent or not. And since de novo and since it's been ramping up, we're seeing more and more of those that maybe in the past would have gotten through the 510K process, now getting kicked over to de novo and saying, no, that really is a new question. Oh, and, definitely, yeah. You know, so what used to, you know, I look at some of the old 510Ks and you look at what their predicate was, it's like they're nothing alike. Right. They don't even do the same thing. They don't look the same. They don't act the same. And now I wouldn't even attempt that on a 510K. It, I, I just don't think it would go anywhere. Probably not even through administrative review. Yeah, some of these regulations are... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Brian. No, I was just going to say the... Hearing both of you guys talk about that, it, you know, 510Ks, that probably should have been de novo. You know, when you think about resorbable materials, I mean, 
resorbable orthopedic implants were equivalent to metal implants or permanent plastic implants. And you think about all the differences there. The, I mean, in hindsight, those maybe could have and should have been de novo. But um, yeah, that's all I wanted to say there. Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, definitely some of these regulations are a mess. But I guess historically it makes sense, right? Like some of these devices would be, they would see it and like, oh, they're not quite a PMA. I don't think we want to do a whole PMA for this. But like, it's also not necessarily substantially equivalent. Like, how do we shoehorn this into a 510K? And I think you sometimes see these regulations that have just like a hodgepodge of things in there that don't necessarily fit. So, so in looking at how it's all evolving over time, Breakthrough has been around a while now. So how, how has the Breakthrough process evolved? So in general, we've seen an increase in popularity over time, but FDA is also accepting fewer over time. So uh, there's data that goes back to 2015 when it was the expedited access pathway, like Kevin mentioned, the EAP program. Uh, so in 2015, there were 22 applications uh, for the EAP program. And in 2020, so last year, there were 387 applications. Um, and when you sum up all the applications from 2015 until today, there have been about 900 applications in total. And just a little over half of those have been accepted uh, into the breakthrough program. Uh, and one thing that you can notice when you look uh, year after year is that FDA is accepting fewer and fewer uh, of these applications into the breakthrough program. So it, it does seem like FDA is uh, getting more selective uh, with accepting certain devices, device types into the uh, breakthrough program. Yeah, the other thing I've seen is not what they would accept as part of the breakthrough application, you know, early on was maybe more theoretical. And we've seen more recently where they're starting to say, well, let me see some data to support your statement here. So not necessarily clear at the beginning when you're just starting out the project, but they wanna know that you've got some proof of concept on or maybe even some clinical data to include in your breakthrough submission. So that's been a change we've seen over time. That's good to know. What, yeah, what think, is your, oh, go ahead, Kev. Oh, sorry, I see, I, I think, dovetail on that just because how many submissions reviewers are getting I think when this was first released it was very very difficult of how to apply some of these criteria because it is a little bit ambiguous right like what does represent the uh, breakthrough technology mean and I think as more more review divisions got more exposure to these types of requests I think they've gotten more comfortable with applying that kind of decision making process um, and I think I say this because I think with the STEP program, we're going to see sort of a learning curve as well of FDA trying to figure out how to apply these in what different types of situations. Because people are going to broadcast when they get this, right? And that's going to be used as a baseline for what people are going to think, like how to meet those criteria and how FDA is interpreting that guidance criteria to their decision-making process. So has anyone had experience here with the Breakthrough program? Any Anything to share? I actually think it's been great. So I've been involved in in some and, you know, some for many years now. Um, the interaction, the ability to email off a question to a reviewer and have them reach out to the right person at FDA, find an answer and get back to you interactively has been awesome. Don't use it a whole lot because trying not to abuse that, but <laughs> recognizing that that avenue is there for those urgent issues, that's really helpful. 
The other is I love having the sprints where it's really focused topics and you from start to finish, you're done in 45 days has been really great. I found those to be really responsive. They, they're prepared, they meet the timelines, they get feedback to you, they allow follow-up questions. You know, we've done meeting minute disagreements, we've done, right? Like every part of the process has been followed and done quickly and you can really close out those meetings in a really, you know, in less than two months, which is really good on a particularly a PMA product where you've got a lot of really tough questions in a lot of different areas where you want to talk biocomp and you want to talk, you know, software and you want to talk all those different topics to bring those experts in the room is, you know, that smaller meeting seems to be a little more productive. Yeah. So the, just trying to put myself in the shoes of the the reviewer. So when I left FDA, the EAP program was still a baby. Uh, so I never had the opportunity from the reviewer side to be involved in breakthrough or or step. Um, but I feel like a reviewer would really enjoy that opportunity because I always felt as a reviewer, not always, but often would feel like I'm really just grading a paper when I'm looking at a 510K or a PMA. You know, if if the quality of the work is good, you get an A, you get to go to the market. Uh, if it's so-so, you get a B or a C, you get some deficiencies. If you get a D or an F, try again. But it's, I like I like the idea of FDA getting involved earlier, of giving them that exposure to the design and development process. Um, and I hope FDA can sort of continue and ramp up uh, these programs and actually, um, the most recent most recent Madufa five meeting minutes were published. So from the most recent uh, meeting from April, um, and FDA was was talking quite a bit about wanting to uh, reinvest in this program because they they only only see upside to these innovative programs. Um, FDA, or I'm sorry, industry was a little colder uh, to you know giving more money to these programs, which is understandable. Um, and there is an interesting comment about um, industry saying that it's it shouldn't be all about speed. Uh, there, it's about the quote quality of the journey, which I think is a nice sentiment. But at FDA for almost 10 years, I would hear all the time about how FDA needs to be faster. We need to not stifle innovation. So is quality important? Yes, but uh, speed has to be part of it as well. And these programs should help with that. Yeah. And I will say ahead, that Nancy. they're not really accelerating. Like if you submit an IDE, it's still 30 days when you get your letter. Right. You might get some questions sooner. I've gotten questions as soon as like five days after the submission, which is nice, not getting them on day 29. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that approval letter and, and a forward go step is still taking the 30 days. And um, the same thing on PMA modules, we're still seeing them take the full timeline to review those and get that back. Yeah, to add to what Nancy's saying, I think the the time, I'm not necessarily sure, unless someone tracked the breakthrough schedule, it really increases, but my experience in talking to other reviewers, it doesn't seem like it's specifically, they're like, oh, we've got to hit a shorter deadline, but more so I think the consistency of your feedback with FDA and the quality is probably going to be a little bit well, I'm not sure. I don't want to say quality is better, but I think there is a lot more management oversight with these breakthrough programs. So whenever we receive one in FDA, 
um, there's no unilateral decision that's being made, right? The moment you get your granted breakthrough, you're going to bring this to office rounds, division rounds, and you're going to talk about it with the team. Everyone's going to weigh in. Like there's a lot of focus on these. And then when you get accepted, there's a whole nother group in the agency in charge of breakthrough step. Uh, that is like the same with like early feasibility. There's different groups really focused on these programs. So aside from having the whole division and teams really focused on your breakthrough, you have another group also being like, hey, how's it going? Anything we can help with? Timelines, you're still gonna meet it, right? And then like you present these at office rounds, which is even one higher level or the super office now at OPEC rounds. So there's a lot of opportunities for like upper management to see this, a lot of opportunities for other reviewers to give input as well as like other oversight from separate groups in the agency who's really just focused on making sure you're hitting the, the program mission and vision. Yeah, I, I think I could echo that, right? The feedback we've gotten in the breakthrough programs has been pretty high quality. Like we don't get bogged down in a lot of the noise. We don't get bogged down in the little stuff. You know, they tend to focus. Oops. <laughs> Nancy froze for a sec. You're back. I think I cut out for a sec. Sorry. Yes, you're good. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, yeah, I think I get what you're saying. Yeah, Nancy, because I think, uh, especially coming to this side, I didn't realize how much variability there was in reviewer. Uh, you know, reviewers have a lot of discretion with what deficiencies they issue. And sometimes there's not a management oversight who oversees all your interactive deficiencies. Sometimes you get these ones that are like out of left field. But I think with breakthrough, since everything has just so much layers of management that have a lot of expert reviewers, everything that chances of getting really strange, like, hmm, that's like odd. I think the quality of the feedback probably is slightly more consistent with breakthrough. So let's move over to uh, talk about the STEP program. But with the with the step program being new, what should you expect from the agency initially, and what are some uncertainties around how step will be applied? You know, like in the coming months and years. I think it'll be slow. So, in talking to friends of the agency, it sounds like everyone's still already been trained, so now they're fully accepting it. But I think being trained and then seeing live submissions is a different thing, right? Because some groups will definitely be slower at getting step than others, just like we saw with breakthrough. Like probably with um, like IVDs, maybe you'll see more, but I think like there will be a learning curve um, with the agency. And I think it's gonna take a lot, especially the like division specific might be slower than others. And I think they're gonna be looking for the big winners right now, right? They're gonna be looking for the ones that are like clear cut. Yes, this is, an, this is what we had in mind as an example of what the STEP program should be. And they're really gonna try to get those winners picked out of the bunch. So I think they're gonna be very selective initially of what they, they do. So if you have like a really clear cut idea that you think matches the descriptions, mm -hmm. like you probably have a decent chance of getting picked. But I feel like if you have one that's like, oh, wishy wait, like wishy washy, then you know, FDA may not have the capacity at this point or like the bandwidth mm -hmm. to try to review all of those. Yeah, I found looking at timelines because these tend to be more likely to be a class two device as opposed to the PMA devices on the breakthrough. Sometimes looking at the overall timeline, if I'm going to do a single pre-submission meeting and then submit my 510K, or I'm going to go, you know, does it make sense to add another 60-day review process to do the STEP program in there too? And so we've mm -hmm. seen, you know, some for some clients, it doesn't make sense to add an extra two or three months to their timeline um, to get the STEP designation. Other products where 
right? It's maybe a two or three year development. They know they're gonna need clinical data. It probably makes a lot more sense if they have a safer device or, you know, some other factor that's gonna fit into the STEP program to get that, those advantages. It'll also be interesting to see how much safety data FDA is gonna require to prove, to meet those second criteria, right? Because safety is generally not collected in a 510K, especially improvements of safety. Those are always like claim land, but now companies will have to somehow provide a really strong justification or clinical. And I'm not even sure, I guess FDA is not even sure what they're going to be accepting, I think, for this. So I think it'll be interesting to see the first couple that come out, what kind of evidence they had to provide to get accepted um, and meet that second criteria for step. Yeah, although I think the human factors might be a nice one to use to meet that second, because you could do that then in a human factor study comparing yours to what's currently the current clinical practice, that might be not not as intense as a full clinical study. True. And probably, you're probably doing it for your own device anyhow, so. And it's probably one in, of the, yeah, I was just gonna say, I was just gonna say that, that human factors criterion, that's probably one of the few where it would be easy to provide, relatively easy to provide pre-market data on that versus the other ones where you're talking about reducing adverse events, uh, reducing device failures. I mean, you're really not going to know that unless you did a clinical study or your device is already on the market. So doing a human factor study pre-market, that's reasonably straightforward. And if you're non-significant risk, you can do that without uh, an IDE to, to FDA. I think pre-EU MDR times, I think it would have been a little bit easier to collect it, but now I think the paradigm is just shifting with how much stuff is going on in Europe. Like it seems like US is almost easier at this point. It does seem that way. Uh, we have a question from the audience. Does STEP make it easier to apply for reimbursement from CMS? So STEP well, was, yeah, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, no, no, Kevin. No, I, can, I can add after you. <laughs> okay, yeah. So CMS did have a, a program and the regulation actually has been delayed now until December that would reimburse for the first several years after your breakthrough device was approved. It did not include the STEP program um, in that regulation. So there is not, there's nothing on the CMS side currently that would accelerate that reimbursement. Yeah, so I think to add on to what Nancy's saying, I think um, there's nothing that directly ties saying, oh, I have STEP, now they're gonna for sure pay me more or give me an NC, a good coverage determination. Um, but I think having that additional safety can be a good argument for show like why your device is reasonable or necessary. Because I think CM, like CMS private payers always look for why should they pay for yours? Like what is the added benefit of your treatment versus anything else on the market? So having the additional safety data or the human factors one that shows that, yeah, we're providing a much better alternative than the competitors could help your um, reimbursement strategy down the line. Have there been many submissions yet under STEP? From what I'm hearing, it's not the rush I thought. So I think it's like trickling in and I think, um, what, it opened in March, I think. So I think when I spoke to them, I was like, oh, like, how's it going? Like, are you guys completely swamped? They're like, oh, it's still like coming in slowly. I'm like, oh, that's surprising. Like, it's such a great program. I thought people would have been just ready to go, but mm -hmm. uh, I guess there, there's some, but I guess not like, not like hundreds. I guess, what it's, from what it sounds like at least, I don't know exact number, but it sounds like maybe 
where the breakthrough was in the starting program where there's like maybe several, I guess, they're still trying to go through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and looking at the, the press releases, I haven't seen any for the STEP program yet, uh, but I got to feel that once companies do start getting those STEP designations, I mean, why wouldn't you announce it? Yeah, it I makes mean, me there's... think there's might be, yeah. Also, it makes me think there's a delay, right? Because there's like 60 days where FDA has to give you a determination. So starting March till now is more than right. 60 days. So some companies must have heard one way or the other at this point. What are some what are some tips and tricks when considering these programs? Like there's step breakthrough, CDRH innovation, pair communication task force. You know anything that you have to share? Yeah, so I think it's a different kind of submission. If you're used to doing five ten gays or PMAs and you're proving the safety or performance of the device, that's different than when you're saying, look at the the potential for you know this breakthrough. Look what it could do. Look what it could. So I think. If you're a regulatory person, it's hard to get out of that mindset. I have to prove this statement, you know, and take a different approach and say, no, from a clinical standpoint, what's the situation? And so, you know, borrowing some of that language or using literature with, you know, facts and figures and making it very scientific in terms of why there's such a clinical need is a little bit different writing skill. and content that you need to take it and it's okay in this case to not have all the answers you're not proving your device works yet you're just proving that there's a need for it so that's a little bit have to look at it kind of in the opposite way that you normally do and i think once you do get that designation i would maybe try to level your expectations because it's not like you get that designation with breakthrough or step and then the next day or a couple of weeks later you're on the market. I mean, mm-hmm. you're getting that, like Kevin and Nancy were talking about, you're getting that quality, that more quality feedback from FDA. You're getting that predictability from FDA. And when you have a device either in the step or the breakthrough program that has some sort of innovative feature, you really want that quality and you want that predictability. So, uh, and at the end of the day, I think getting that, um, even though it might not feel faster as you're going through the process, ultimately you, you I would anticipate you getting to market faster uh, instead of uh, getting questions from FDA later on in the process that you maybe would not have expected. And for the breakthrough and step, I think I just want to echo what we said earlier about building your justification really, really well and try to convince FDA that you actually are innovative and novel, right? Because I think there are lots of sources how you can do it and just utilizing all the databases FDA has, even clinicaltrials.gov to see what's out there. Um, really building that argument well because I feel like that's one of the hardest parts of getting, is just basically getting in, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then for the payer programs, I think it's, it's a little more nuanced. Right now, they're basically focusing on like PMA devices. Um, and there's a very low acceptance rate into parallel review. And, but I think because, even if you can't get accepted to the parallel review or you're not a PMA device, doesn't mean you can't get benefit from this program. I think it's a little more nuanced, but like, there are ways around getting useful feedback, even if you're a 510K device or if you're not accepted into PMAs. So like just because you get rejected from parallel review, there's still other ways to utilize that, those payer programs. Mm-hmm. Is FDA responding to QSUB requests during the pandemic or is it improving yet? It, well, it's interesting you say that. So we have heard from FDA that they will not 
on IVDs because of COVID, they are not doing any pre-subs in that space except for breakthrough devices. Oh, so good. that's a it's a great advantage. If you're breakthrough, you're going to get your meeting. And just as an example, we had three pre-subs scheduled last month, all within the same week. The one was for a breakthrough device that happened on time, on the date it was supposed to happen. We wow. had another one, not an IVD. They delayed it one week. We had the pre-sub one week late, but they didn't delay it until like the Friday before the Monday meeting. <laughs> we had one day notice. And then the third one um, in a space, not IVD, but could be related or busy with COVID, that one got delayed for several weeks. Um, okay. So it's, you know, it does pay if you're a breakthrough. And I would imagine this step would be honored the same way um, that you're going to get your Q subs that you're not going to get otherwise or are going to get delayed. <laughs> That's great. That's super helpful. So where are we seeing innovative devices emerge? And like, where, you know, where do we think the industry is going? So I think if you look at the Medufa, uh, you see IVDs have the majority of de novos. Like if you add up all the de novos that IVDs uh, received, it's almost more than like the next top three combined. Um, personally, I think cardio, cardio software, cardio and like software AI and companion diagnostics, I feel like is a great space. It's where I think personally I've been seeing a lot of innovation. Um, and you're sort of seeing that reflected in FDA's numbers as well. So I think it'll probably continue to trend, I would suspect in that way. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see where, what industries step really starts to take off because I wouldn't necessarily see step being perfect for devices like, um, broad statements here, but cardio devices, pacemakers, stents, or neuro devices, just because the risk profile for those devices is so high. So when you think about lower risk profile devices or devices that can treat less serious conditions, maybe you're looking more at the, the over-the-counter uh, space, uh, home use devices. Um, it'll be interesting to see, I guess, you know, if I was a manufacturer and if I had some devices in the pipeline uh, that you would consider unique or disruptive, um, you know, get your risk, your risk file to a mature enough state where you can evaluate your device against step or breakthrough. Um, and there need to be some other considerations like uh, what Nancy was talking about before about whether it'd be worth it for you to get into step or breakthrough. Um, but uh, I feel like, I mean, we talked a lot about what is innovative, one is uh, breakthrough. And uh, Nancy was joking, joking a little bit before about talking to your marketing people. But in my industry experience, those people really do know uh, the state of the market. Uh, it's their job to know that. They really know what predicates are out there. Uh, usually better than, again, in my experience, better than engineering. Uh, they they just know it. So I would say get them involved early and really start to figure out if if you can consider yourself novel or, or, or innovative. Well, great information today, everybody. <laughs>